Hello, friends, and welcome to the podcast. This episode is sponsored by Zoe Digital Japan. Get more visitors to your website and convert them into paying customers. Zoe Digital helps foreign companies expand in Japan with digital marketing services. Look for the elephant logo at zoedigital.jp. Now and Zen is also sponsored by the Gugu Mattress Company. Super comfortable and very affordable. Nothing better than a great night's sleep with a Gugu Mattress. Discount codes available later in the podcast. Hello, everyone. This episode, I speak with Parissa Hagillian, a professor of international management at Sophia University and an internationally renowned expert on Japanese management and leadership. She is the author of numerous books on Japanese management, cross cultural communications, and Japanese consumer dynamics. We dive into all of these topics, plus some Japanese cultural concepts featured in her latest book. Japanese business concepts you should know. Persa explains how Japanese management is fundamentally different from Western practice, why cross cultural business issues are often Japan specific, successful Japanese corporate survival strategies, and what foreign firms can learn. Are there shortcuts to gaining brand recognition and loyalty with Japanese consumers? And talks about her favorite language concept 50 ways to say no in Japanese without using the word no. This discussion is really fascinating, and you're guaranteed to learn something new, even for long term residents. Direct from Tokyo, this is Now in Zen with Professor Parissa Hagillian. Japanese management is fundamentally different. And what I do in my work is I try to make this understandable. Because what I find interesting is because of these differences, and the differences are in, of course, culture, structure, history, whatever, people find or do or manage differently, and they, have, they find different solutions for the same management problems. And yeah. that's the interesting part of it. And of course, if you are in a, for- a foreign in the system, it comes with a lot of frustration, but at the end of the day, you can learn very much as a manager here because. Whatever you come up with is first challenged. And that's something you need to deal with. <laughs> and after a while, you realize okay, maybe there's a different way of doing this. And I may have a second option of solving this business problem.、Yeah. And this is where you grow. I've heard an example like that in Japanese baseball,、mm. where an American player who was a superstar in the US comes to Japan and struggles. And the batting coach will say, Oh, you have to change your posture, or you have to change the angle of your bat, or something like that. And American sports superstar would say, This is the way I've always done it. This is what brought me fame. Why should I change?、Yes. Exactly. But he was in a slump in Japan.、Yes. And when he did change,、yeah. he improved. Yes. It's a fact that you grow faster in a different system, in a new system. It's not fun. It's not a fun process. And especially if you don't understand the system, it's, even, it's very difficult. Yeah? You'd say, oh, come on, I have been doing this for years and I'm very good at it. I had exactly the same experience. So, in the beginning, when I first came to Japan, I didn't want to research Japanese management processes. I was more interested in communications and very classic business studies research. And then after a while, I. I had a conversation with a very well known university professor in Japan, and I said, So, what should I work on? And he said, The most interesting question is for Japanese people here is how do foreigners manage, and for foreigners, is how do Japanese manage? So, maybe you should focus on that. And I thought, Okay, this can't be so 
it can't be so easy. There must be something more complicated here. But I realized that this is actually the main question, yeah. So I realized, okay, maybe I should do that. Yeah, and this is pretty much what I do. <laughs> First of all, how do I pronounce your last name? Agirian. Okay. It doesn't matter because the way I pronounce it is not the right pronunciation. <laughs> I can't speak Farsi well enough to speak say my own name right. So don't worry about that. So I can just call you Parissa, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, that's, yes. That's, that's legal, right? That's the, e- that's the easiest. Well, Parissa, you've lived and worked and taught in Japan since 2004. Mm-hmm. You've written and or edited at least 12 books on yeah. Japanese mm-hmm. management, such as Case Studies in Japanese Management, Understanding Japanese Management Practices, Japanese Consumer Dynamics, and many more. You are an internationally renowned expert in Japanese management. It's a huge topic. Yes. It's a deep topic. So where do we start? How about this? Why are cute mascots essential in corporate Japan? <laughs> That's a very good question. I think in general, Japan is a country where design and visuals are very important. Yeah. The love for detail is somehow reflected in everything that you see in Japan, you know. There's a lot more design in Japan. Mascots are symbolizing this in a way. Of course, in a Western company, these kind of mascots would not really directly be connected to, let's say, a bank or any kind of different industry. But in Japan, the idea of having a mascot is, first of all, something you need if if you're branding a company. But it's also a more or less, I think in Japan, rather traditional thing to have visuals. Also helps for giveaways. You could make a stuffed animal or you put it on some stationery. So that helps too. Yes. I remember when I brought pictures like this first time 20 years ago to European classrooms, my students, they thought this would never work in Europe. A bank would never have a mascot or heavy industry or something. But Pharmaceuticals. Yes. Even now in Europe, you know, mascots or manga, anime, all of this is very popular. Maybe not necessarily for every industry, but still has a very popular reflection. And in Japan, you see, um, people do not connect things the same way as we do in the West. So if you're in a heavy industry, everything has to be serious, serious colors. So here, the connection between things is a little bit more open or free. So it's not necessarily these these corporations are trying to be cute, Mm. just something that's more accessible maybe yes, to yes. the to the consumer yes and we can see this in other aspects too in general and this is the most or one of the most interesting points about japanese companies japanese companies in some ways are very open-minded the reason is traditionally japanese companies are they are much more open about going into different industries without preparation so the western idea about business or what is taught in western business school is But if you, for example, look at big European or Western companies, American companies, they do one thing, one topic, and they stay in the field. Yeah, let's say you are in hospitality industry, you open a restaurant, you open a hotel, that's it. In Japan, we have very many companies, and we're not only talking about big companies, who are very open-minded about going into very different business fields. For example, if you're in heavy industries, and next door there's a hotel that you can buy, you buy that and find out later how to run a hotel. And if you look at the big conglomerates in Japan, uh, Mitsubishi and so on, they are in practically every industry. Exactly. We have companies who say, okay, let's look at the market opportunity first at the outside and then we will try or find out what we do. And this is a bit different and you can see this in all aspects, like connecting, I don't know, some companies, a pharmaceutical company with a a cartoon or with a um, character. 
that's not so unusual here. Yeah, there's a certain open-mindedness, and I have to say, this is one thing I really like about Japanese management. Yeah. It's yeah. very surprising. Wow, yeah. well, that's a that's a deep start to begin with. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I thought it would be a softball. <laughs> no, 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 I like it. That's very good. Being such an expert on Japanese management, does it make you want to go back to work for a Japanese company? Or maybe the opposite, you definitely don't want to go back to work for Well, one. I like working at the university and I like being a researcher. But what I wouldn't like to do is work for a Western firm. <laughs> because um, it has a certain, let's say, aggressiveness working in a Western context. Because, of course, people are much more focusing on themselves, on their topic, on their career. And in Japan, this is something you don't always have to worry about too much. It's well, that's one thing Westerners often complain about, yes. the non-aggressiveness, the passiveness of the work environment. Some would say that's why some Japanese companies aren't competing on an international stage as well as they could be or should be. What do you say to that? Well, it is true. Within the Japanese firm, we cannot see this kind of competitiveness that we see in Western firms, especially at lower positions. But it is a rather reliable system. I do a lot of work in Japanese or foreign companies here in Tokyo. And one big difference is that, of course, in a Western company, you have more control over your career. And that's something you have to like. But many people do like that, even Japanese. So if you are working in a Western company, you have a lot more control over your career. On the one hand, you can negotiate your salary. That's very important, of course. And on the other hand, you are hired for a specific job. We assume that you like this job or you're very well trained in this job. So that's actually something most people appreciate about the Western firm. Whereas in Japan, you enter the firm, uh, your salary is decided, your salary goes up every year. There's not much you can do. And you cannot really choose what you do. On the other hand, you have, especially if you have a full-time Japanese position, a lot of job security, uh, your career is kind of taken care of. There's yep. pros and cons on both sides. And I always tell people um, they should choose the system they like better. I remember when I first started working in Japan, I was working for a Japanese department store. And I became good friends with many of mm. my colleagues around the department store. And I remember a colleague of mine, she comes to me and she says, oh, um, Andrew, I'm leaving at the end of the month. Why are you quitting? You're, you loved your job. She goes, yeah. But it was just announced that I will be transferring from the sales floor mm -hmm. to the HR department. Yeah. And I have no interest in the HR department. So I'm going to quit. Wow, what a waste. Yes. So they're losing some talent on the sales floor. So now they have to hire her replacement and they still haven't found the replacement in the HR. So now they have two problems yeah. and they just, they just let her go. Yeah. Because it was principle. But in general, people would not leave if that happens. They know this is going to happen. Um, every year I teach a class on cross-cultural management at the MBA program in Vasade University. And there's a lot of Japanese managers in these classes and, of course, foreign students too. And we have this discussion in every class. And, of course, from a Japanese perspective, this system of extreme job rotation within the firm is very good. I've actually never met a Japanese manager in ever who says this is not a good system and from a company perspective maybe it's not the worst thing because as I said normally people do not quit and the company can really use anyone like a real human resource in Europe or in I'm not sure but yes but in Europe you'd get into a lot of trouble if you do that I once talked to a, a bank manager Japanese bank manager a very big Japanese bank in Europe and he was about to be transferred back and in Europe he was the head of the German branch so a very big job 
I asked him, so what's going to happen when you get back? And he said, I don't know. And I said, well, aren't you worried when you get back to Japan and uh, you don't know which job you're going back to? And he said, you know, Japanese company is like jumping off a plane with a parachute. You don't know where you land, but you land safely. (laughs) So basically, yeah, you were going back to the firm and you will get a job and you will stay in the firm. You don't know what you're doing. In Western countries, we're very focused on doing what we are good at doing. So this is um, also a very big difference, I would say. Good point. You've written a lot about managing international teams and cross-cultural management. But a lot of it boils down just to diversity and conflict management, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It's basically, I mean, I consult with very many companies. Communication is the biggest conflict point in in cross-cultural teams. That's not surprising. But what is important, you need to understand why people behave differently. So if you're Japanese and you talk to somebody from, let's say, Germany, who is very straightforward and said, hey, what do you want? What's up? How much is it? And you find that very rude. From a German perspective, that's not even rude at all. It's just talking yeah. to people. Yeah. But at the end of the day, yes, every cross-cultural encounter or international management encounter is stressful because in most cases you have to make a mistake first before you learn something. But that's not a huge problem for foreigners. If we make a mistake, a cultural mistake in Japan, we're often forgiven for yes, it. Yes, yes. So that that's helps. true. Yes, that's true. Japanese people have a lot of patience with these mistakes. How much of these cross-cultural issues are Japan-specific? What I mean by that, are these cross-cultural issues also big in Latin cultures or European cultures? For example, I work for a German company. And I never hear my colleagues complaining about Italians or Spaniards having improper time management or not respecting the rules or something Mm. like that. Is this Japan-specific? Well, Japan-specific in a way that, let's say, the Japanese system is in contrast to the so-called Western management system, which is, of course, very much based on the idea of one person in the firm doing a particular job, taking care of his or her career, moving up, and... Personal achievement plays a very important role. That would be the so-called Western idea. The Japanese system, in that sense, is the only real system in contrast to the Western system. And I think this is what makes it so much more complicated. Because even very fundamental things are very different in Japan. If you are looking to companies in in Italy or in Latin America, of course people are maybe more group-oriented, they spend more time or in a coffee shop or whatever, or maybe they're not so conservative about time management. But at the end of the day, their careers look the same way. They're hired for a certain reason, they promote themselves, they move up because they achieve something or they're good at their job and so on. Whereas in Japan, the whole setting is different from the start, and that's why people behave differently, too. I've heard that in Latin cultures, the perception of time is something infinite, Mm. like running water. It just keeps coming. (laughs) Whereas in Japan, or maybe in Germany, or Austria, that the perception of time is something that is finite, like a sausage or a loaf of bread that it's only cut up into so many pieces. Exactly. This is an interesting topic, but time management as such is the, the smallest problem you can have. I mean, people who want to work here learn to be on time. Right. I went to dinner last night with a, a Japanese friend and a German friend, and German and me we were <laughs> 10 minutes early, and the Japanese person was five minutes late. So it was actually quite funny because we are always too early or on time in Japan because that's right. what we learned to do. 
But yeah, this is one thing you can actually change more easily. What you cannot really change so easily is our values and attitudes. Of course, values and attitudes shape how people behave and how they speak, and that's where conflict occurs. I mean, I'm sure you've, you've changed the way of speaking or your way of speaking a lot since you came to Japan. I have. Definitely, yeah. yeah. And it's also more, let's say, accepted in Western cultures to speak about yourself and promote yourself and what do I like, what's my opinion, what's my political opinion, whatsoever. Here in Japan, this is not necessarily always the most interesting topic and can be perceived as too much yeah, right. in, a, in a group conversation. Right. So these kind of things play a very important role, whereas we are very much trained to see people or understand people via conversation. I learn about you if you tell me yes. what you like and who you are and what you think. Whereas in Japan, my impression is often that people learn this by being together and watching what people like and do and having experiences together. So it's not, it's not always necessary to say everything. Yesterday I had a conversation with a foreign manager and he He said you have to be comfortable when working in Japan that sometimes there's a three-minute silence in a meeting and it means nothing. Sure. <laughs> yeah, this is one thing you have to learn, yeah? Wow. Because where we're from, silence is never good. Because you're there for your opinion. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And if you don't defend your opinion, you may not be seen as a, let's say, decisive manager or something. Whereas here, you don't always have to defend your opinion because the group comes to conclusion together and you bring in your opinion to support the group decision. Yeah. The discussion in Japan is more circular. The topic floats around the room and that's how it works. Let's get more topical and yeah. specific. Corporate Japan and the COVID pandemic. Japanese companies have survived successfully over mm. centuries. Yes. Of course, there's been wars, economic crises, mm -hmm. natural disasters mm -hmm. happen all the time. But how do you think this current pandemic crisis will affect companies in Japan going forward? Well, I wrote a number of articles about Japanese companies' survival. Japan has, has the oldest companies in the world. The oldest company in Japan is older than a thousand years, so this is really quite amazing. And they've developed a number of strategies how to continue. And the most important thing is to continue the firm. So it's not so much connected to one owner or one family, but the firm must survive. What I find interesting about COVID is, well, first of all, everyone on this planet is kind of affected. But in Japan, it has a special angle because um, many Japanese management processes are very people-based and, let's say, relationship-oriented. Hierarchical, the yeah. kohai, senpai, amairu. Exactly, yeah. yes. And also, the people really work together a lot. If you've seen a normal Japanese office, there's up to 200 people in one room. So they actually always interact. They see each other. There's not many secrets. Uh, whatever the neighbor does, I know. So it's kind of the way of working. And one more thing is that in Japan, people just move around the company all the time. So they're basically always getting a new job and a new task. Transferring. Exactly. They're transferring yeah. or they just get a new task. And today yeah. I'm doing this and tomorrow I might move to New York and do something else for the same firm, of course. The interesting fact here is that, of course, you have this idea of cooperation within the firm and within the country. And that's um, maybe a little bit different from many Western countries where people would say, oh, why would I have to wear a mask? Why would I have to do this? Whereas here is, yes, if I wear a mask, everyone else will be safe and we will basically go through this together. And I think this was not a bad concept, as we could see. Yeah? Mm -hmm. It worked a lot better here than in other countries. Yeah. 
which Japanese corporate strategies and management practices、mm-hmm. can also be implemented by Western companies when facing crises? Well, one thing I just said before is the ability to. Drop things and start something completely new.、Yeah. Whereas in a Western company, and this is also one very important difference, if you're working in a Western team or in a Western company, you have specific jobs. So you're, let's say, hired for to do marketing management or as、right. a, a key account manager, whatever, and you do only this job. So you can't be like transferred to any other position in the firm, which in Japan you can. This is why teamwork in the West is very interdependent. So, for example, I have to finish a report and give it to you, so you can continue work. And this is a different way of working with each other. In most Japanese teams, everyone can do any job,、yeah. and the team leader can definitely do any job. In traditional Japanese、yes. company, maybe not so much foreign affiliated companies. So, foreign affiliated companies have their foreign reporting system and their foreign positions, and every position comes with certain responsibility, a budget,、sure. whatsoever, and you have to take full responsibility for your decisions in this position.、Yeah. In Japan, it would often or mostly be a group responsibility. In Japan, many people can just. Change their business content, their topics completely. I've talked to a lot of people in the past year, and I know people who basically closed the business down as it was and opened it the next day with a totally different business model. Can you give me、um, an example of that? Well, you have a, a, a friend who had a company which was basically very focusing on tourism. There were a number of touristic projects. They were seriously affected, and they decided to basically become an English online learning school. Changed the business model and it was, went really well. And it was a small company, only a handful of people. This is one example that you can say, okay,、sure. this doesn't work anymore. I'm not kind of too nostalgic about it. I move on and do something else. And big companies do the same. In Western countries, we find it very difficult to drop things that we've invested a lot of time and effort in and start all over again. But here, you can see this everywhere, and I think this is one of the most fascinating points here. When you look at big Japanese companies, Nintendo is a good example. They used to have a taxi business, a hotel business, so they're basically going into different business fields. If it doesn't work, they move on. Nintendo is a very old company.、Yeah. They have actually changed their business models continuously over the past hundred years. And researching the firm because the firm is a very good example of how you can actually survive over the centuries. That's a good point. It's not, it's not only Nintendo. Every big Japanese company is easily moving into new fields.、Uh, another good example is Fujifilm. In the 1990s, when digital photography came up, Fujifilm's main business kind of disappeared,、exactly. and companies like Kodak had a very big problem with that. But Fujifilm decided, okay, we have a lot of knowledge, in particular technologies, or basically dealing with surfaces, and we can also apply this knowledge to skincare. And they became a skincare company, and、yeah. they've developed really a cool skincare brand, which is extremely popular. And they totally reinvented themselves.、Yeah. Most big Japanese companies,、uh, if you look a little bit deep into them, are in very many different business fields, and sometimes they develop them out of a. Market opportunity, or sometimes they just take over a business that's for sale, which is also a major Japanese strategy to buy businesses all、right. over the world. Diversify, yes. also yes. for tax reasons, of yes. course.、Mm. Yes, probably, but also this is the the easiest way to grow if you have a lot of money, and the Japanese market is shrinking. So if you want to grow and you have no problem integrating all kinds of businesses into your bigger company, then you just go and shop and、yeah. buy businesses. Japanese speakers know that zo means elephant in Japanese, and elephants are strong, intelligent creatures where the leaders nurture their young. 
Zoe Digital Japan is an SEO and digital marketing agency based in Tokyo. Contact them to help your business grow traffic by four times, seven times, and even ten times in one year with services such as SEO, content marketing, pay per click advertising, and more. Head to the website zodigital.jp and look for the elephant logo. We all know getting a great sleep is important, and this is what Gugu is all about. Super comfortable mattresses at very affordable prices and delivered to your home for free. They back up their best sleep ever promise with a 100 night money back guarantee. Learn more at gugu.jp and enter the coupon code ZEN for your 20% discount. Gugu, better sleep, better you. Well, I think this is a good segue、mm. into talking about your recent book, Japanese Business Concepts You Should Know. However, This book could have just as easily been titled Japanese Culture Concepts You Should Know. Yeah, I never thought of that, yes. There's, there's approximately 100 cultural items here、yes. from A to Z, from Amae to Zangyo. <laughs> and each term、yes. you devote about two and a half pages to it.、Yes. And each term is explained in such well defined and easy to grasp way. Thank you. And here's one I'd like to quote. Is that okay? okay? Go I, ahead. Yeah. I think I need your permission. No, to, no, no, to, you don't to, need to. to go ahead, go ahead.、Um, here. <laughs> But it's one of my favorites, and it's a characteristic so pervasive、mm-hmm. in Japan. Gambaru and gaman. Yes. You define it as achievement orientation. I quote It is very important in Japan to be oriented towards achievement. One of the highest virtues is that of doing one's best, persisting, and working hard. Gambaru is an active process wherein one works hard in pursuit of a goal, strives to overcome difficulties that might arise, and takes on difficult tasks, even though they might be painful.、Yes. Mm. And then Gaman,、uh, which is related to Gambaru, but should not be confused with it, Gaman. Concerns the ability to patiently withstand something unpleasant that one has no power to change. Yes. That's a perfect definition. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well,、it. actually, this was a, a school project. The students were asked to write some kind of dictionary entries on each、um, topic, but I edited it,、uh, well, for quite a long time. Yeah, so I basically rewrote everything. But in fact, the idea here is to give people explanations about the most relevant Japanese concepts. And these explanations should not be my opinion,、mm-hmm. but properly researched explanations.、Yep. The idea of Gaman and Gambaru is actually a really interesting idea. I, I remember when I first came to Sofia University and one of my first classes was about strategic management, I talked about strategies that you can drop. Or basically, that don't come into effect. And after the class, <laughs> some of the students came up to me and said, But this is not possible. You can't just drop things once you've made up your mind to do it. And I said, Well, yeah, in theory, it is possible. In practice, it might be difficult. But yes, you can just stop doing things. Yeah. It was very interesting. There were four students coming up and saying, Well, you were wrong. <laughs> this cannot happen. And I found that very interesting because you can see that these concepts are very deep inside us. 
I like this kind of conversations and I, I really love teaching in Japan because you get a lot of very different answers. Yeah, Especially when you introduce Western business concepts, people would sometimes say it's not possible. And in Japan, it is not possible. So this What's uh, one Western business principle that would be impossible in Japan? Well, for example, if you're a group member, constantly focusing on yourself and sticking or telling everyone your opinion, sticking to your own opinion all the time. Yeah. Not uh, This is just really... Of course, you can do that in theory, but that won't get you very far. No, you, yeah? won't. you won't last very yes. long, that's for sure. Yeah, and on the other hand, you know, if you're talking to Westerners saying, look, if you're in a Japanese group, the first one or two years, you just watch and listen and learn what to do. Minarai. Yes, that would... That should have exactly. been in the book. Yes. Minerai, that's yeah, yeah. a very important one. <laughs> yes, maybe I should. I actually, after I finished, so I, I came up with so many more concepts, but since it's an e-book, I can add them anytime. True. So that was one thing I was thinking of. What do you hope people get out of this book? Well, what, what I want to do with this book is to make sure that people who have very little idea or who work in Japan, who need profound, properly researched explanations for what they see or yeah. the concepts they hear about. Yeah, yeah well, they're going to get it. And you can go on Wikipedia and look at them up there. That's one thing. But I do think at some point you need explanations from an expert. And for me, it was very important that this book is not biased. Yeah, This is not a book written by Westerners about Japan. There's, uh, we had a lot more entries which were, from my perspective, a little bit too flavored and all biased and uh, kind of did not take them in. But the idea is that it should be neutral explanations about concepts by somebody who knows. The idea is really to help people understand. Yeah. Well, Parissa, I have a theory I'd like to run by you. Yes, go. That go when doing a task, Japanese prefer the process to be difficult, yes. complex, even tedious, rather than simple and efficient, because it instills a sense of achievement an accomplishment when completed. Do you agree or do you disagree, Professor? I partly agree. I mean, one thing that we have to say is, yes, Japan and Japanese companies are extremely process-oriented. And the reason is, to be a good group member and to be integrated well in Japanese societies, you shouldn't go your own way. You should do things that support the group, and this is keeping the rules and basically do what you're being told. So that's one thing. On the other hand, we also have Japan as a country that based its wealth and economic success on process orientation. Yeah? So Absolutely. Japanese manufacturing is world class and this is the reason that people keep processes, that they like complicated processes, mm -hmm. that they perform them well, even if they have a bad day or they didn't have any breakfast. And that's, of course, Japan's competitive advantage. But yes, when we have processes in times of crisis and we need to change them quickly, then, of course... Japan or Japanese companies do have problems because most of these processes are complicated or maybe bureaucratic because a lot of people are involved in developing them. Sure. So you cannot change them quickly. That's one thing. And of course, if there's a lot of people involved in a simple process, uh, a lot of opinions come in and everyone has to be kind of accommodated. That's why it's often very bureaucratic. Yep. But it's a bit difficult to discuss these things because in Japan we can really say that's the backbone of Japanese success the backbone of their success, but often people will complain that the effort or the process is more important than the result. Yes, it can be. That's very true. And that's, of course, not really what businesses should do. That's ineffective. And that's, of course, lowering productivity as well. Yeah. Mm. 
Let's talk a little bit about Japanese consumer dynamics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Something that I'm a little bit closer Mm -hmm. to. Uh, The consumer always comes first in Japan. That old phrase, the customer is king. That rings true more in Japan than almost any other country, doesn't it? Yes, definitely. So consumer expectations are definitely the highest in the world. What are some specific challenges then? international brands face entering the Japanese market? Well, there's a few challenges. First of all, entering the Japanese market definitely means you have to change. There's no way you can stay who you are or exactly the same as before. Especially if you're in consumer in the consumer goods industry, uh, Japanese consumer expectations are so very high that you have to adapt to them if you want to sell. You really have to know how Japanese perceive products and what they like about it. Yesterday, um, I went to a big department store and I saw a cake shop from a very famous bakery in Austria. And I was really surprised. I didn't know they had a shop here. Then I talked to my Japanese teacher and she said, yes, but probably it tastes different here. And I I, I was my my Japanese teacher who uh, lived in Austria for very many years. And I thought, why? And she said, yes, the the, the chocolate is somehow different, maybe. And I I didn't realize that, yes, of course, these are small things. Mm -hmm. What is good for us, a good chocolate in Europe might not be exactly the same here. So we have this localized taste and you have to adapt. And this It takes research, it takes time, and of course it costs. One more thing, it's important that for whatever you do in Japan as a foreign company, there's always, and this is the big difference to other Asian countries, there's always at least one big Japanese firm who's done this maybe for centuries. (laughs) And this company, yes, they're local, they know the customers, they've done it for ages. So this, this is, of course, very challenging. But if you have a very specific product, a design product, that a brand product that is interesting, you can, of course, still be extremely successful here. And many companies are. Sure. But they have adapted, especially the service and also after-sales service. Yeah. yeah. Big uh, topic. But I find most interesting is that a lot of Western companies who enter the Japanese market actually set a new benchmark after working here for a few years. Many of them re-import their Japanese standards back to their home country because they're so much higher and they learn so much here. That's something that also can inspire headquarters. Japanese people like brands, but they're not brand loyal. So if this brand doesn't work, I move on to the next one. That's an interesting statement. So why do you say that Japanese are not loyal? Well, basically, there's a lot of really good brands around. For example, if you look at, let's say, my father who would drive the same car brand all his life and there's no chance he would have changed. Here, this is not the same. Yeah, People would buy one luxury car of a very famous brand this time and the next time they go to a different brand. And that's normal. That's a big problem here for many of uh, luxury firms that people do not stick to one brand. People try different brands. And that's, of course, if one brand doesn't perform well, you just have no problem moving on. One way to succeed in the Japan market is by acquiring brand identity or legitimacy in the Japanese consumer's mind. Are there any shortcuts? There there are not really any shortcuts. Of course, you have trends, yeah. But what you can do and should do is to educate consumers. Of course, consumers in Japan are, they are very, let's say, sophisticated, but they're also very interested. So people are really... They like investigating products. One of my first interviews I did in Japan when I came, this was more than a decade ago, was with a German 
top manager of a German car brand and he said they had to re-educate all their car sellers because people would walk into the shop and they knew the product better than the car seller. And that was uh, really a problem. So people investigate. The, consum the consumers, yeah, the consumers knew more. Yeah, they would go into the, 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 the cars, uh, how do you call it, car shop. Yeah. yeah? And, car uh, dealer. Car dealer, yes. They would say, okay, I've investigated this car for the last two, six weeks and I know this and I have this and this and this question people couldn't answer. Wow. So this, it, yeah. of course, this was a long time ago, but that's a very good example. People are very interested in products. They research them well. Yeah, they, well Japanese they, are, are knowledge hunters. Yes, yes. That's when you have a new concept, a new brand. You need to come with a story. You need to come with history. You have to tell this well. You have to make sure it's reliable. And you can educate. Facts tell and stories sell. Exactly. Prissa, it is that time to ask you the go-to <laughs> okay. question. Yeah. What is your favorite Japanese word which does not have a direct English translation? I, um, I don't have one favorite word, but what I find most interesting is the way people say no. Once uh, a student in my class said, in Japan, we have a 50 ways to say no, but we never use the word no. And I really like that. There's a lot of ways of saying no by saying, I don't know, chotto, hmm, or maybe. And I really find this very interesting. And for me, I think this is extremely elegant. That's an art that, to identify when, this, when Japanese are saying no. Yes, and it's not so easy. This is also one very big topic when we talk about cross-cultural teams and communication. When is a no a no and when it's not a no? For my Japanese clients, it's sometimes difficult to say no to Westerners and I always advise them, give percentages, say we have a 10% chance that this works. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so people will know this is probably not working. I chose Gambaru and Gaman earlier, but mm. I almost chose Enryo. Yes, that's also very Because good I really one. like yes, that one yes. as well. And yeah. it's self-restraint, mm -hmm. but Envio is also a little bit involved with no because it's almost a polite way of being humble yes. where you say no. It's yeah, a polite it way of saying no when you actually mean <laughs> yes. For me, Envio is, is taking a step back to make sure the group can benefit, trying to make sure that people feel more comfortable when going ahead. Great, love it. You've been interviewed before and talked with a lot of different people. Yes, <laughs> that's true. What's yeah. something you wish people asked you that you never seem to get the chance to answer? Uh, that's a really good question. Oh, yeah. I would like to answer the question what it means personally for me to live here and work here. Parissa, what does it mean for you professionally and personally to live and work here in Japan? Yes. So when I first came to Japan, I of course knew that I was working here in a different system and I did really learn very many things. Yeah? It's a, a steep learning curve, it's a, a very big challenge and I have to say after all those years, I think you agree with me here, you get so used to these challenges that it's very difficult to go back home where there's no challenge or almost no challenge and you kind of know what's going to happen. But what I did not expect is that this actually also affected me personally. Yeah? I've really changed as a person. One reason is, of course, the cross-cultural challenge. how have you changed? Well, you see, as, as we said before, cross-cultural learning is based on mistakes. So it's a very tough emotional learning process. And you are constantly questioned as a person, as a human being, the way you think, what you do. 
And that was something that I did not expect. So I, of course, hopefully became a better professor and a better researcher. And I learned a lot about Japanese management. But at the same time, I think I've changed very much as a person. Because in Japan, I was challenged all the time. But people did not really kind of... Um, judge me very much and I like that very much so in Europe you know if I have a problem people everyone would give their opinion and talk to me and share and whatever but here I was pretty much forced to investigate things on my own I grew from that as a person too and that was something I did not expect and this was um, at the beginning very difficult I think you everyone who lives here at the beginning has the same experiences but I realized that this did me really well in the end and of course you know, being in this environment where people have a very different attitude and idea about life is really something I, I love. Yeah? Yeah. I, I, every day I have one experience where I think, oh, wow, this is yeah. something I would have never come up with on my own. And it's not only professional. Of course, um, a job is a good way to integrate in a country because you are exposed. You cannot really ignore yeah. anything anymore. You, if you're there, you have to be there. But for me, yes, I never expected that. And that was, uh, for me, the biggest challenge, for mm. sure. But at the same time, also the biggest opportunity for personal growth that mm. I that I could possibly have. Wonderful. As you talk about that now, how does it make you feel? It makes me feel good. But I've been thinking about this a lot. And I've been here very many years as you have. I mean, I only realize how I've changed when I go home. Being here, you you are, of course, in a setting where people behave in a certain way, get used to it. So you do you do adapt but when I go home and last time I went home somebody said to me oh you're not getting upset about anything anymore <laughs> I was like I will I do get upset but you see as as I learned you know sometimes getting upset doesn't really change much yeah if you really want to change much something do something <laughs> just sitting here complaining is not making the world any better yeah so this is really something that I also learned in Japan that people if especially in times of crisis or let's say there's an earthquake people start really Doing something right away, this is, for me, it's been a very strong message, you know. I remember my first really big earthquake in Japan. I left the house. I was so shocked and stressed. And I went to the convenience store on the corner and the whole shop was covered with products. Everything fell off the shelves. And I said to the shop assistant, was there an earthquake? And she said, yes. And just started cleaning the shop. <laughs> just no, no comment, nothing. And I, I, I was just taking hours to calm myself down and I realized okay it's a good thing to just do something yeah. and not waste too much time on complaining about things because yeah. that doesn't really change things so there's a lot of these things that you learn that's a good point thank yeah. you for sharing that well I love your optimism and <laughs> as I said I love your book yes, thank you very much keep up yeah. the good work I think that uh, you've got a lot of great insight that thank a lot of people much, don't yeah. have you are a, a true expert when it comes to Japanese management and thank business thank you very much thank you for your time today thank you very much for having me I really enjoyed our conversation likewise <laughs> thanks and that was Parissa Hagirian author professor and expert on all things Japanese management. Very fascinating stuff. Check out her profile on LinkedIn or all of her books available on Amazon. I've read two so far and superbly enlightening. Thank you very much for listening to Now in Zen Japan. Until next time. Bye everybody. <laughs> <laughs>